0: Part 3. Lago Atitlan Time cannot return all those years of gathering butterflies and dreaming cobweb dreams. Spring. Leela laughing. Rivers running to the sea to rise again, no doubt. After the beginning and before the end. A strange place to be. Alone. Together. Jack Hadley, Mind Dance. Chapter 8. I had a dream full of deep early memories, mixing with intense, almost erogenous emotions. I was around six or seven, back at Granddad's ranch on a summer eve, all alone in the big barn, milking the cow and feeling really proud that I could squeeze the hard tit and provoke a good, fat squirt. Gripping a tit in each of my small hands, shooting twin streams of hot, steaming cow juice, and watching the bucket getting fuller and fuller, my forehead resting against old Susie's withers, squirting away faster and faster, discovering complex syncopations as I breathed in the scent of hot milk while listening to the steady rhythm of Susie's chewing her alfalfa and rolled oats. I woke up from the dream and slowly realized where I was and who I was with, but Mahi was gone from the camper. Momentarily panicking, I glanced out the side window to the river. There she was sitting cross-legged on a blanket beside the pool, meditating as the sun topped the ridge and touched her hair with a glancing golden sheen. And yeah, I admit, my heart leapt up and missed a beat, as Grandad would say, just seeing her there. We nibbled some fruit and nuts and packed and took a walk and said goodbye to the camping spot and drove back along the dirt road beside the river, then accelerated onto the main road, heading south. We climbed higher and higher into the mountains at around 50 miles an hour. Neither of us were talkative, but when a sign stated that the border crossing was just 10 kilometers away, I could tell that she was becoming tense. Uh, hey, it'll be okay, I said. Stay silent now, she barked back at me. I feel something. Let me sense this. I shifted down into third for a steep climb up a curve, listening to the engine, keeping the RPMs at just the right torque. Juan! Fuck! Stop! Pull over! Now! she shouted at me, pounding urgently on the dashboard. So I pulled over at a sharp curve in the road, with overgrown jungle on either side. Mahi reached in back for her backpack, flashed a final intense look at me. You drive on through, go to my father, she said, find him at the lake. She opened the door, leapt out of the camper, swung the door shut, and went running into the jungle, and out of sight. I just sat there, sweating, jolted by her sudden disappearance. And... Not sixty seconds later, two jeeps loaded with young military machos pulled up, jumped out with guns, and surrounded me. I found my body slipping into a moment of total paralysis as some uniformed dude sauntered up to my window. Then my tongue went into action in Spanish as I explained to the head honcho, some Mexican kid playing God, that my motor had overheated. His guys were walking around the camper, looking inside. He ordered me to start the engine. It sounded fine, and with full military escort, I headed on. My heart missed a couple beats as I imagined my running through the mountain forest alone. What the fuck? At the ramshackle border, the Mexican official took my passport and looked me over carefully, asking the usual questions, and then they let me drive on. The real shit hit the fan when I got to the border proper, with Guatemalans rather than Mexican guards to deal with. They took one look at my vehicle, quickly checked the plate against some info they had on a clipboard, and then suddenly shifted into high alert, ordering me to park over away from the road beside a big wood-framed office and metal barn. An older guy, skinny and tough with a constant smoker's cough, came out of the building and inspected the license plates, rechecked my passport, then shouted a one-liner order. A guard produced handcuffs and slapped them on me as I watched two men with wrenches begin searching my camper. How perfectly could that jade piece have been hidden to escape their practiced eyes? What would I be charged with? illegally transporting archaeological artifacts into rather than out of the country? There was shouting from one of the guys searching my camper. He came running to the head guy with something in his hand. Damn! Mahi's German passport. She'd forgotten to take it with her. The guy running the place did some more checking and talking on his cell phone, scanned the passport photo then got seriously rough when I tried to lie my way out of the situation. Where was the woman? What had I done with her? I continued playing dumb. The guy got back on his cell phone and talked urgently with someone somewhere, then waited a long moment, then talked to someone else. Whatever was being said from the other end of the line wasn't to my advantage. The guy started glancing at me with a different attitude, then walked right up and looked intensely into my eyes. He said just two low words in grumbling English. You shit. They took me inside, down a long hallway, into a small back room. Two guards were left with me, the door locked from the other side. Both of the guards chain-smoked, eyeing me as if I might do something violently heroic at any moment. I sat upright on a metal folding chair, my hands cuffed and hurting like hell. Time went by. Then I heard the harsh sound of a chopper coming in and landing. A minute or two later, I heard footsteps coming down the hallway. I stood up stiffly as a man of about forty or fifty, ugly and pudgy but hard-boiled and wearing casual military garb walked in and ordered the guards out of the room. The door closed. He stood there eyeing me without saying anything. I held my ground and eyed him right back. "'My name is Queimado. I am in charge here,' he said in sort of good English. "'I understand you have come into our country with an extra passport but no extra body. Young female, good-looking from the photo.' Who is she? She's a German schoolteacher, like I told the other guy. I met her in Oaxaca a few nights ago, near the big church at the plaza. Pues, go on. So, okay, I said. We liked each other. We hung out around Oaxaca a couple days. Then she said she wanted to come with me to Guatemala. So, sure, I agreed to take her. I haven't broken any laws, have I? Tell me the exact current location of this woman, he demanded. Like I said before, the last time I saw her, she was down in the gas station below here on the Mexico side. We stopped for a coke and some gas, and she met two guys. They were in a red Ford, talking German. Old friends, I guess. So she came back to my car and grabbed her pack and said she wanted to travel the rest of the way with them. So I headed on to the border alone. The guards found her passport in the glove compartment. I thought she had it. She's probably in a panic. I should drive back to that town, see if I can find her. "'And you never saw this woman before Oaxaca?' he asked. "'You would not be telling me a big story, would you?' "'Hey, I've no reason. It's a simple situation.' "'That woman,' he went on. "'You say she is German?' She said that she's from Stuttgart. She had sort of a German accent. I'm worried for her. She needs her passport. Do not worry about your girlfriend, he muttered. We are already quite busy finding her. So then, what's the problem? That, he said, is what I want you to tell me. I've told you everything I know. You are a lying, stinking son of a bitch. Fuck all this macho stuff. I've done nothing wrong, I told him, my voice dropping low as my anger rose. I'm down here entirely legally on vacation. I became friends with a German woman. Then we went our separate ways. End of story. Otherwise, I demand a phone call to my embassy in Guatemala City. Kemalo's expression shifted as he slowly seemed to take in my words. Inhaled, exhaled, calmed down, then looked deeply, intensely into my eyes. For a moment I thought I could see an actual human being in those eyes. Then, with a quick movement, he swung and hit me hard in the jaw. I fell back onto the floor, banging my head. I saw the jerk grin, and then... Calmly walk away. Still handcuffed and tasting blood from the blow, I was taken out and thrown in the back seat of a Jeep and driven down the highway into Guatemala. The guy beside me kept his M16 aimed at my gut. My mind was an angry mess, grumbling about how the machine gun was probably made in some munitions factory in Ohio. The Jeep, bought from Detroit, The whole Guatemalan army supplied and trained by the U.S. Marine Corps. My camper came along behind with some teenage military goon grinding gears. I surmised that they somehow hadn't found the jade. That thought led to Rafael. Maybe I could phone him if I got into deep trouble down here. We took a right turn and entered a formal Guatemalan military base. They deposited me in a building down a long corridor in a tiny room with barred window and a cot. And that was that. Slam went the door. Wham! Went a metal latch on the outside. I sat down on the cot with my mind struggling to stop panicking and think rationally. I was being held prisoner by the same military government that had performed so many phenomenal atrocities over the years. I'd read about a recent upsurge toward democracy and decency, but I knew from personal sources that nothing really was changing in Central America. Perhaps I was destined to become just another insignificant Amnesty International statistic. Unable to hold still, I walked over to the dirty barred window. I could see jeeps and trucks coming and going, guys marching in small military units, And there was my van, to the far right, up on jacks with several men under and around it, the front headlights torn out, a door off its hinges, and all my camping gear thrown on the ground. What chance was there that the jade piece could go undetected? It was just too big to have been hidden that perfectly. The sound of helicopter blades slashing into nearby air hit my ears. I needed to pee, and my jaw and wrists were hurting like crazy. Loud footsteps came down the hallway. A key worked the lock of my cell. The door opened, and in walked a man of about forty, maybe fifty, tall and lightweight, wearing a casual American suit with no tie. Damn these military numbskulls, he was saying. He made a slight wave with his hand, and a guard took off my cuffs. They rough you up much? Oh, I said, not too much. Luckily, he went on, I was free this morning. Name's Nate. Nathan Wingster, with the embassy. A woman walked in with water and a towel. I stood passively as she washed the blood from my face and then cleaned up my wrists, putting a salve on the torn skin. "'So what's all this talk about you running with the revolutionaries?' the embassy guy asked in a casual voice. "'Total bull,' I told him evenly. "'I got friendly with a German woman up in Oaxaca, "'and now they're trying to tell me she's a spy or a terrorist or something? "'They've got the wrong woman.' "'Well, they're just doing their job,' he said. "'You hungry? "'There's a good restaurant on the base here, "'if you don't mind the stuffy atmosphere.' And so the embassy man took me down a hallway, showed me the bathroom, signed a few papers in the outer office. Then we were walking out and across the dusty main plaza and down a back lane to a cozy restaurant. Hardly anyone looked at me and my companion as we took a table. The guy with me, Nate by name, Midwest accent, seemed relaxed and casual as if he did this sort of rescue mission regularly. Well, anyway, thanks, I told him, as menus were handed to us. Those army guys should be locked up. But the woman, her passport. It's best, he said, for you to stay out of that. People don't realize that this is in some ways still a war zone, just another of those unending regional disputes. So tell me. What are you really doing down here? Well, I'm just visiting for the holidays, I told him patiently. I lived in Guatemala as an AFS exchange student way back in high school, never been back since, so I thought I'd come down and spend Christmas in Antigua, where I went to school. And just which school might that have been? La Escuela Mirabella. It's the American school there, up from the city about four miles you heard of it? I have been stationed here nine years, he told me. I know all there is to know. Going anywhere else on the trip? Well, maybe up to the lake. The Valencianos took me there for a vacation. I remember it was a really nice place. Yes, it's relatively peaceful up there if you stay in Panahachel, like all the gringos do. Don't cross the lake to Santiago Atitlan. The natives remain restless in that region. They're mostly Mayan blood, still fighting for the old ways, which, I must tell you, weren't so pretty either. So I've heard, I said. Indians everywhere get the raw deal, as you must have noticed down here, and all the gang violence, kids with no future, no jobs. Well, the gang problem is mostly down in the city. Be a bit careful in Antigua as well. And the first thing you should do is drop in at the embassy in the city and register your itinerary and addresses and so forth. That lets us stay aware of you. Safest way to travel down here. And if you're up at the lake, don't look for trouble. The Indians do have a violent edge. There's an intense shamanic tradition around that lake. Right now there's some brujo up there called Alejandro, as I remember, who claims he can do, well... A lot of things. Anyway, enjoy the lake. We ate a pseudo-fancy cuisine while Nate shared some dramatic stories about the sometimes downright dangerous ins and outs of keeping Americans out of trouble down here. He sounded fairly liberal when it came to the Indian plight. He had a suave manner, though, that hid most of him from view. After lunch, we walked outside, and there was my camper, waiting for me. Consider yourself lucky, the embassy guy said as we shook hands. And if anything comes up where you need help, here's my cell number. Give me a call. And I mean that. You hear? He handed me his fancy embossed card. Nathaniel Wingster, Special Unit, U.S. Embassy, 147 Calle Real, plus phone and email. He returned my papers, passport, car registration, and wallet. I climbed aboard my trusty craft and, without further ado, motored off down the seemingly endless road to Atitlan. I got about five minutes from the border and then pulled over onto a shoulder. My face felt like it was burning up and my breathing was so tense I just sat there frozen at the top of an inhale for a very long moment. But then the rage hit me with a a raw, open-mouthed howl. My diaphragm muscle came unglued, and I screamed to the high heavens. The discharge lasted, oh, for about ten or twelve breaths. And then the rage was spent, and I just sat there, shaking. For a teary moment, I softened and started sobbing as the last tremors of the emotion gurgled out of me. My chin was killing me, and when I tried to relax my jaw and open my mouth wide, an intense pain ran through my system. God damn him! though, Not a name I'd forget. But what now? Ah, my phone! Maybe even here I could reach out to someone. But when I opened the glove compartment, damn, no phone. I thought of going back and demanding the phone be returned to me, ah, but I just didn't have the gumption to head back into that mess. No cars were going by. I was all alone here. Well, not entirely alone. There were five unmoving human beings standing up ahead on the side of the road, a hundred feet from me. Obviously Indians, because, as I remembered down here, the indigenous folk were very short and still tended to wear their colorful weepi lace and skirts and long backstrap shorts. There was a middle-aged man, and probably his wife, along with three big-eyed ragamuffin kids, Somehow the sight of them helped me regain my composure after the border trauma. I rolled down my window and waved to them, and shouted greetings in Spanish. The father seemed to understand. He came walking across the road to me, hauling one of those stuffed, hand-woven, wool-carrying bags. Por favor, he said in broken Spanish. May we ride with you? I asked him where he was headed, and he just said, "'Atitlon.' When I nodded, it took them just a few seconds to scramble around to the sliding door and climb aboard. None of them took the front seat. They all sat cross-legged on the bed and said not a single word. I caught myself worrying about fleas and lice and so forth, and realized that was my ex's reflex, not mine. I could smell their presence, but it wasn't at all a bad smell. It was very woolly and earthy and human. And for the next couple hours, my mind went mostly into driving the curvy mountain road with its crazy drivers and here and there a few locals on foot, and yeah, the occasional dog or donkey to dodge. I realized that here on this side of the border, down out of Mexico, there was a palpable shift, a unique feel to the place and I felt somehow home again, the present moment mixing with a dizzying swirl of my previous stay down here, a stay that had become almost, well, overly mythic in my imagination. But then I got regularly hit as I looked off down into dense mountain jungle, and remembered that Mahi was right now out there somewhere. But shit, how the fuck could she make it all the way down to Atitlan, over a hundred miles away? And how long would it take her? She'd told me, back when we were up in Oaxaca, that her boyfriend, Daniel, had run a border-crossing operation through jungle trails. Probably that operation had continued after Daniel's murder and her retreat up north. So I assumed that she'd jumped and run into the jungle hoping to hook up with them. That goddamn! I felt so helpless, driving easily down from the highland border, knowing that she was out there, on foot, and I couldn't help her at all. I guess that's why I really don't remember much of that four-hour drive to the lake, hitting 50 out in the wilderness stretches, passing tiny native farms, slowing to 10 or 15 miles an hour in the bigger towns, and sweating traffic jams through Huehuetenango and Quetzaltenango, I admit, I relished the sights and sounds all around me. This was such an entirely different world down here. Then finally we made it to Sololá, at the crest of the Atitlan crater, where I stopped, as directed, and let my mute passengers pile out and disappear down a side street. Alone again. I drove through the dusty, poverty-prone town, and then headed down the narrow, curvy road into the looming Atitlan crater. And finally, there was the deep blue lake down below me. The vision took my breath away. Even though the road was steep and scary, I just couldn't take my eyes off the view. It looked like Lake Tahoe, transported two climate zones and several major culture shifts to the south, which I guess is pretty much what it is. When I'd visited the lake as an exchange student, we'd driven up with my girlfriend's parents from the east, from Guatemala City. This northern Sololá approach was new to me. The lake seemed larger than I remembered. It was about 50 miles wide, west to east, and 8 to 10 miles to the south where the tall volcano San Pedro Toleman and the even higher Volcan de Atitlan, locally called Caban, towered over the far side of the lake. And in a slight haze at the foot of the main volcano, way over there I could see the inlet and large bay of Santiago Atitlan, the native town where Mahid said she'd grown up and so it was that I motored with swirly memories and vague anticipations down two thousand feet to the lake itself, which was five thousand feet above sea level, and for me a thousand extra feet high up in the mythic clouds. When I got to the bottom of the steep grade, I pulled over to the side of the road where I could overlook the small town of Panahachel, It looked basically the same as before. I'd heard that the whole lake had remained mostly underdeveloped, with the entire population of Panahachel still less than 20,000 people. I scanned the town below me where the river ran down from the steep jungle mountains into the small floodplain. The west side of the river had most of the single-story town buildings, hotels and Latino residences, while the east side of the river was still mostly native plots of hand-gardening and traditional bamboo and thatched huts. I just stared for a few moments, feeling exhausted from the long day that had started with Mahi meditating by the river. So, what to do now that I was here? Where would I find Michael Bernhardt among those twenty thousand locals?" Right then, I just wanted to find a hotel and crash, so I motored on down to the one main street, hung a right and drove a quarter mile past well-kept vacation homes, and came to the lake. I checked into a comfortable room in the one fairly fancy hotel where I'd stayed with my girlfriend and her family. I locked my door, crashed down on the bed, and fell asleep. An hour later, feeling somewhat refreshed, I gave in to a simple urge to put on my swim shorts, grabbed a towel, and headed down to the hotel beach. A few native dugout canoes were pulled up on the pebble shore, probably for hotel guests to goof off in. This was definitely one of the super beautiful spots in the whole world but Central America had such a negative reputation violence-wise that the lake was still relatively untouched. Standing there, knee-deep in quiet, cool water, looking across the great lake at the twin volcanoes a dozen miles away, my mind conjured up memories of my girlfriend, standing beside me, holding my hand, at this exact spot almost fifteen years back, Wow, that was half my life ago. I found myself wondering, where would she be now, doing what, and with whom? Yeah, but more to the point, how about Mahi? Where was she right now? The afternoon wind was picking up from across the lake. I waded out farther on the pebbles, remembering the local myth my girlfriend had told me about the Atitlan monster that lived deep down in this giant, bottomless pond. She'd actually been afraid to do much swimming in the lake. With a slight tremor, I dove in and stroked downward till my lungs were ready to burst, then went up and surfaced with a great gasp, imagining at that moment that I was the dreaded lake monster myself.